Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. This week, we are inserting an episode out of chronological order. That's a first for us on the podcast. Um, Our essential text this week is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was written in the first centuries of the Common Era, meaning after Jesus Christ. And so it belongs earlier on our reading list, right after our discussion of the Virgin Mary. When I found the most incredible reading partner to read this text with me, I knew we had to do it right now, even though it's out of order and we just will just stick it in. So for today, we're going to get our heads back into the various accounts of what happened during the life of Jesus Christ. And we'll consider how it would feel to have a record that we knew was written by or about a woman. And we're also going to talk about who determined which accounts made it into the Bible that people read today. And here's a hint. It was not women making those decisions. Surprise, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) So with all that as our introduction to guide us on that journey today, I am just thrilled to welcome the scholar, musician, composer, and poet, and Renaissance woman, Dr. Kayleen Asbo. Welcome, Kayleen. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's such a pleasure to be with you on this such an important topic. Oh, I'm I'm so excited. I'm wondering if to start us out, you could just introduce the text a little bit and tell us where the, where the Gospel of Mary Magdalene came from. I'm guessing that um, for a lot of our listeners, I mean, everyone will know who Mary Magdalene is, but may not have heard of the book of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So can you just kind of acquaint us with that text? Absolutely. Um, and and I do want to just drop in one thing before I introduce the text, though, because while most people have heard of Mary Magdalene, there's still incredible confusion about who she is. And mm-hmm. I still, to this day, encounter people who say, wait, wasn't she a prostitute? So mm-hmm. I just want to say that it's really important to lay the groundwork that the biblical Mary Magdalene and the gospel of Mary Magdalene are very, very congruent in the sense that the biblical Mary Magdalene, the woman, if you look at the canonical text there, is the faithful witness to the crucifixion, and she is the first witness to the resurrection. So the word I would use for her is disciple. And the gospel Mm -hmm. of Mary, although it's in fragments and it's dismembered, is a a telling of many of the events that are congruent with what we have in the New Testament. Essentially, there is an appearance by Jesus and he, um, he disappears, he leaves, the disciples are in fear as we find, for example, in the book of Acts where they're hiding in the upstairs room and they turn to Mary in their fear and their confusion and they ask her and they say, Please, Mary, tell us the words and the teachings that you know that we don't, because we know that the teacher gave you private teachings. And so she then recounts uh, a visionary experience that she had in which Jesus came to her and gave her this profound vision. And that is the the text of the Gospel of Mary in a nutshell. Hmm. Now, um, It came as a surprise when this was recovered at the very end of the 19th century. There are three extant copies of it, although 
there is not currently one in its wholeness. Um, there are three copies. They da- date, um, the copies date, um, when you do the, the carbon dating from the third century to the fifth century. And they're in two different languages. They are in Coptic and they're in Greek. And in a nutshell, what that means is that we can surmise that it was a widely disseminated text for several years several hundred years. If you think about what's involved in taking and transcribing and translating and writing texts on papyrus, um, it's a very laborious, time-consuming project that required great skill. And so these weren't things that were done casually casually. It it indicates that this was a text of deep importance, enough that it persisted and was recopied over several hundred years and translated into multiple languages. Hmm. Now, what we have are fragments because when the original document, there was one that was um, whole um, and it was sold. It was, uh, was, was bought actually and uh, bought by a German scholar, but it, it wasn't deemed to be critically important for a really long time. And it languished in basically a faculty office where there were burst pipes and World War I happened. And it wasn't until after World War II and the finding of the Nag Hammadi text where Mary Magdalene appears in many of those other gospels and other texts as, as a disciple of of not just some importance, but some would argue the most important disciple, that that people began to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, these other things that we have, these other texts that we have, we should take a look at those and translate those and study those more deeply. So the fragments that we have from what's known as the Akirinkus manuscript, and then the one that was originally whole but but is in fragments now and parts of it are missing, they were all compared, and Karen King has done a wonderful sort of side-by-side comparison of all three of them. Um, and there's a lot of consistency, even though we have these fragments and even though what we have is not a full manuscript, what we do have has been called by Hal Tausig and the New Orleans Council of Scholars when they came together, the single most important recovered document of our times, even though it's in fragments, because what it gives us is a perspective on early Christianity that is radically causing a rethinking of our assumptions. And it just, it just points with sort of laser sharp precision into the, the difference between what we assumed early Christianity was for hundreds of years and what is now coming to light. And, and that has, is so exciting. And it's so exciting, particularly for women and the light that it sheds on women's history. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, um, we, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about um, the Nag Hammadi text and uh, because you mentioned it just now, I wondered if you could just really quickly explain what that was. Nag Hammadi, I think, is uh, it's a place in Egypt, right, where this that's different right. um, papyrus book, and that's what a codex is, right? I, I almost want to provide like a glossary yeah. of terms, right? Sure. A codex Thank is a book Thank you for doing that. Papyrus. That's so important. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, so a codex is a collection of multiple books. Okay. And what we have uh, in Nag Hammadi, it was in nineteen in December of nineteen forty five. Um, some Bedouin sheep herders went and they actually found uh, as they were searching for fuel, they found this gigantic earthenware jar, 
And inside of it was a collection of books, of ancient papyri um, books, um, that was really a treasure trove. And unfortunately, some of those books were destroyed. They were actually used as kindling for a fire. But what we have- I read um, that. that I like- <laughs> It's heart stopping. Like almost um, cried. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what we have that survives is 52 books. And these 52 books include a wide variety of literature. It includes some gorgeous poems that are called the Odes of Solomon. And it includes, actually, it includes a platonic text, um, but it also includes several so-called gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. And what these are is these are stories that were used by early Christian communities about the teachings of Jesus that didn't make it into the final cut of the Bible. And essentially, mm-hmm. what, what you can think of about biblical history is that in the first, especially in the first few centuries when Christianity was an outlawed religion, we didn't have a definitive text. What we had were small communities, many who gathered in people's homes and other communities that would gather, for example, in the catacombs of Priscilla in, in Rome, uh, in these underground caverns um, in places. And the communities that would gather then would share an oral tradition of the teachings of their rabbi, of Jesus. And it wasn't until generations later that any of these texts were written down. For example, uh, biblical scholars will say that most likely the earliest text that we have in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, was probably written down in the year 70. And Mm. then Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke, there's a lot of dissension, but one common dating is somewhere between 100 and and 110, for example, for those. So if you think that that's multiple generations later before Mm -hmm. the oral Mm -hmm. tradition becomes written down. Um, So we, we at one point probably had hundreds of different texts that were the written form of the oral teachings that had been widely disseminated. You know, after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, we're told that the disciples scattered and they went in different directions. So there's a common tradition, for instance, that the, the disciple Philip went to Syria, that the disciple Thomas went to India, that Peter went to Rome, and that the disciples spread out and they took what they remembered of the teachings of their master and they shared them with the communities that they went to. And it wasn't until um, after the um, conversion of the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, where Christianity stops becoming a persecuted underground religion and becomes an accepted religion, and then eventually becomes the official state religion of the Roman Empire, that it then became uh, sent out, I think at the year was 376, but it was definitely fourth century, mm-hmm. that a list got sent out by uh, Bishop Athanasius. And he sent on a list and he said, here are the books that are the authorized teachings by the Roman Empire. 
And if the implication was, if you have other stories about the teachings of Jesus, these are no longer acceptable. And it was mm. kind of implied that you should destroy them. But essentially, the Nag Hammadi Library, most scholars believe, um, were the books that were hidden from this large Christian monastery and hidden because they didn't want to destroy part of their wisdom text collection. And so they hid them and they were safely preserved then until 1945. And mm. it's only been during our lifetime that we are able to see now for the first time texts that are probably far closer to early Christian teachings than what we've inherited. So the fact that we don't have all these redactions and translations and copying errors that happen between the first copy and the advent of the printing press, we, we know that there were so many changes over the centuries, means that it's actually closer to the original and perhaps the original teachings than what we have, for example, with the canonical texts where I think, for example, one of the canonical gospels, the, the earliest surviving version that we have of this is like 12th century. So if you think about mm. that, it's profound. It's profound. No, it is profound. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, coupled with the fact that, yes, this is there was a, a period of time where this was all this was oral tradition anyway and so the the game of telephone mm -hmm. happens even if it had stayed in one language with that variable being removed but then when you add right. all of the different translations and then like you said the the lenses that these men saw through which were patriarchal lenses in deciding yeah. how to interpret the the you know the text that they were reading especially as they take it from one language to another and i just think I, as you said that, and and I had heard that before, that Holy Spirit used to be uh, considered feminine. And I thought, how would that have changed my life and my concept of myself and how I fit yeah. in the world if I had grown up believing that the Holy Spirit were feminine? And it, and what you're saying is that it seems that that is the original way it was actually spoken. That is the and original. Intended. And there's actually yeah. a movement among some um, some churches now to reclaim that. Yes. So there is, there does emerge after the fourth century an emphasis on one form of Christianity that's about rules and authority and patriarchy and adhering to a particular kind of creed. There begin to be in the fourth century these councils that vote on what we're all going to say and what we're going to believe. And if you subscribe to that, you're in. And if you don't, then you're in danger of heresy versus mm -hmm. the groups, the multiple, multiple, multiple groups of people who say, here are the wisdom teachings of Yeshua. And now here are the processes. Here are the prayers he taught, for example. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Take it on as a practice. Um, so one of the central teachings in the Gospel of Mary is that Jesus is referred to as the good with a capital G. And it is, this is why the good has come into your midst to reunite you with your roots. And I love mm. that because the root of the word religion is religari in Latin, and it means to religament, to put back together what has been out of joint or dismembered. Mm. 
to straighten and align and make healthy and whole and healed. And the teachings that derive from this gospel of Mary that were perpetuated throughout the world in different traditions are to reunite us with the good, to do, to engage in the practices that can return us to the root of goodness that can heal us and make us whole. If you think of holy and whole and how in English they're connected, I think that's an important thing, a Mm. really important thing to reclaim. That's powerful. Um, Is there a passage, Kayleen, and I know that you did now get us into the text. You just quoted the Gospel of Mary Magdalene a little bit, and I'm wondering if you could read a little bit more um, from a passage that you think is particularly important and tell us why it's important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here it goes. This is immediately after. I'm actually going to start it with the previous passage again. This is why the good has come into your midst. It acts together with the elements of your nature so as to reunite it with its roots. Attachment to matter gives rise to passion against nature, and thus trouble arises in the whole body. This is why I tell you, be in in harmony. If you are out of balance, Take inspiration from manifestations of your true nature. Those who have ears. After saying this, the Blessed One greeted them all, saying, Peace be with you. May my peace arise and be fulfilled within you. Be vigilant. And allow no one to mislead you by saying, here it is, or there it is. For it is within you that the child of true humanity dwells. Wow. So beautiful. Isn't that? It's so poetic and that emphasis on the goodness within and turning inward to remember the goodness that is in us and to Mm -hmm. find those things that can bring us back into balance. It's such a different view. It's such a different view. It's like, oh, I'm out of balance, not I'm Mm -hmm. bad, but I'm out of balance. How do I get back into balance? Mm -hmm. Oh, I turn to the wisdom teachings and the practices that can mm-hmm. return me to the essence of goodness. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's that's beautiful. One other thing that I thought, uh, Kayleen, a, a question I have for you is, I mean, when I'm when I'm thinking about the the men who are making the decision to not include this text in the yeah. canon in the official um, book of scripture that we mm-hmm. ended up all inheriting, I I am thinking. Well, I'm wondering, I guess, do you think that it was deliberate? Because this is a really subversive, it could be seen as very subversive, <laughs> yes. right? Because it gives yes. people their own inner authority, which means they yes. are not going to be able to be subjugated very easily if they think that they have 
you know, the son of man or, or the child of, of true humanity true dwells humanity. within us, yeah. then we don't need those hierarchical um, authoritative structures. structures as much, right? That's right. If we are utterly dependent for salvation on having sacraments conferred to us by a priest who's been authorized by a lineage that dates back to Peter, right? we're going to have one sense of things. Yep. But if we have a sense that, no, no, there is a seed of goodness, you know, that there is this imago dei, there, Christ dwells within everyone, and we need to just connect to that, then, then it, it definitely um, subverts the need for obedience to authority. Mm -hmm. it, it just as tragic to me that it was left out of the scriptures that I grew up with, I could have so benefited from that. Oh! But I'm benefiting from it now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that probably will lead us into our last piece, the, the end piece about Peter's response to this vision. Did you want to read that part? I would, because this was probably, there were so many um, passages and, and, and you're right. It is a very short text, but it's so rich. Um, there were so many things that struck me, but if I could only share um, part A and part B from this one passage, then I think that's what I'd like to, to end on. So Great. as you said, you, you set it up perfectly. This is, this is a passage where the, the disciples are all talking. Um, my understanding is that this is after Christ had um, been resurrected and had ascended. So he was gone <laughs> and the, and, and there are, you know, echoes of this. There are other episodes in the, in the new Testament where you have this same thing where the disciples are afraid and, and, you know, they're afraid they're yep. going to be killed just as Jesus was. So I'll, I'll uh, start the passage here. It says, quote, the disciples were in sorrow, shedding many tears and saying, how are we to go among the unbelievers and announce the gospel of the kingdom of the son of man? They did not spare his life. So why should they spare ours? Then Mary arose, embraced them all, and began to speak to her brothers. Do not remain in sorrow and doubt, for his grace will guide you and comfort you. Instead, let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us for this. He is calling upon us to become fully human, Anthropos. Thus Mary turned their hearts toward the good, and they began to discuss the meaning of the teacher's words. In this moment, she arises and, and comforts them and embraces them and calls them brothers. There's so much love in her leadership. So much love. She, so much love. This isn't, you know, this isn't just a, a reversal of now she's going to, you know, um, lead them authoritatively. No, it's just with love. But she gives them the pep talk they need. Um, she reminds mm -hmm. them that they have the power inside of them. And yes. so to see that as an exemplar of what a, a role that a woman could be in, in a spiritual mm -hmm. Um, context was so powerful to me. Okay, so the next part is part B, I, I guess, of my um, what I wanted to share. So, so what happens in between is then that what you just shared, Kayleen, which is where they say, so you know, you were really, really important to the teacher, and he loved you more than all other women. Um, is there something that he shared with you? Maybe that we don't know. And so she shares this divine revelation that she's had. And so at Peter's invitation, she shares <laughs> the vision that she yes. had, right? And mm -hmm. then here's how the apostles react. Quote, having said all this, so meaning after she shared this vision with them, Mary became silent 
for it was in silence that the teacher spoke to her. Then Andrew began to speak, and he said to his brothers, Tell me, what do you think of these things she has been telling us? As for me, I do not believe that the teacher would speak like this. These ideas are too different from those we have known. And Peter added, How is it possible that the teacher talked in this manner with a woman about secrets of which we ourselves are ignorant? Must we change our customs and listen to this woman? Did he really choose her and prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and answered him, My brother Peter, what can you be thinking? Do you believe that this is just my own imagination, that I invented this vision? Or do you believe that I would lie about our teacher? And that the end of that quote, and right there, I just have to interject how much it meant to me to see myself reflected in this story and mm. just have the empathy of how that mm -hmm. feels to be a woman. And I'm sure this isn't the first time that this has happened to her. So I, I get the sense of like the fact that she just cried and thinking of my own tears as I've had conversations with beloved men even, right? Because she says, my brother, mm -hmm. Peter, like this is someone she mm -hmm. knows intimately. And just that frustration of like, really? You're not going to take me seriously. And I've just felt You're not going to believe so, me. <laughs> right. Because yeah. I'm a woman. And mm -hmm. that she's she just has that, you know, kind of thrown in her face again, like, oh, after all of this, even you still see me as less than you. Mm -hmm. and, so yes. I just so love, are you going to, do you want to read the, uh, what Levi says? Because I just, I just love this part. Yes. I, I was <laughs> planning so to include. Good. Me too. Good. And, good. Uh, yes. Yes. I'll, I'll read it. And then I want to hear what you think about it. So after this, so Mary is is frustrated and um, feeling so sad about what's happened. And it says, quote, at this, Levi spoke up. Peter, you have always been hot-tempered, and now we see you repudiating a woman just as our adversaries do. Yet if the teacher held her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the teacher knew her very well, for he loved her more than us. Therefore, let us atone and become fully human anthropos so that the teacher can take root in us. Let us grow as he demanded of us and walk forth to spread the gospel without trying to lay down any rules and laws other than those he witnessed. Um, and, and for me, I just w wanted to applaud. And, um, <laughs> yes. and, I've, and I also just have to throw in, I, again, personally, as as many experiences of frustration of not being listened to and, and being talked down to and, and de demeaned sometimes by men. I also have had so many beautiful experiences of mm -hmm. men who, mm -hmm. who do listen and do and stand up for me and stand up for women and are champions of yes. women. And I just so am so grateful for Levi's example, and that that's yes. included in this text as well. That's one of the things I thought. What do you think, Kayleen? Oh, absolutely. I believe it. And so, completely. And that is absolutely one thing that we want to reclaim here. It's not an either or. It's not mm -hmm. a black and white, male, female. This fully human it is all of it. It is this journey of being anthropos. And so if you hold that, that yes, it is the masculine and the feminine together will lead to our world's flowering, the masculine and the feminine within each one of us, 
You know, Jesus had so much of what we might call the feminine aspect, love, compassion, tenderness, all of those qualities united beautifully with masculine, so-called masculine qualities of strength and power. And you put these together Mm -hmm. and you think that he taught his, his first, his, his first witness, you know, Mary Magdalene steps into those shoes to become fully human. And now she calls forth all of us to become fully human by connecting to the goodness that is in us and remembering our roots and opening to our fullness. And I think that is such an important message for our times, for men and for women, for everyone, you know, to, to use the phrase that Paul uses, you know, neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female, but to call us into our full humanity. Mm. Well, that was just a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation, Kayleen. Um, I've learned so much from you, and I'm so, so grateful that uh, you agreed to be my reading partner today. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. (laughs) 